Tonight, we're going to look at Psalm 69. If you have a bulletin, you'll see we always list out the sermon points there. Tonight's a little bit different, though. Think about these three points in your, in your little bulletin as a preface uh, to the message. Because tonight, kind of in light of Easter last week, uh, I w- my goal, my hope tonight is that you will be able to see Jesus very clearly uh, without much distraction or clutter around him. And so these three points, I don't want to have to kind of like pull a message to fit an outline. And so I wanted to kind of consider this as a preface. We'll talk about it a little bit up front, then we'll read the passage and we'll look at it. So I wanted to give you a heads up about that. The three points over here is that the Psalms are a window, not a mirror, that we, uh, we look through them and we see Jesus. And then the last point, we, when we truly see Jesus, that's when our faith grows. So the Psalms are a window, not a mirror. We look through them to see Jesus. And when you see Jesus is when your faith grows. That's true if you're not a Christian, if you don't know where you are with God, and that's true if you are a Christian. When you look at Jesus, your faith grows. So really quickly, kind of a little preface before we read the passage. What does it mean that the Psalms are a window, not a mirror? We look through mirrors to see something on the other side of them, to see through them. And you look at a mirror to see yourself. You can't, can't see through a mirror. And so uh, if you read, and the Psalms are they're a window, we look through them to see something or someone else. And you could say this actually of the whole Bible. If you read the Psalms or the Bible as a mirror, looking for yourself, looking for uh, places that kind of really resonate with you or just looking for experiences that you share, it's going to bore you pretty quickly. And the reason why you know this just from your normal life, anytime we focus on ourselves, we get bored pretty quick, right? Like narcissism bores a human being because we're, we're actually not as exciting as, of people as we might think we are. And so if we read the Bible only looking for ourselves, only looking for what interests us, what fits the feelings or emotions or thoughts or ideas or opinions that you already have, you're going to be left only with yourself. And there's no power to change or to grow or to see God. And that's why that can end up kind of feeling like it has no power to it. But what happens if you read the Bible or read the Psalms like a window? You look through them to see someone or something beyond the pain. Then we begin to grow and learn and change. And I think it actually becomes more interesting to us because you're seeing something new and different. And you're not just left with yourself and your own willpower in the Christian life. You're actually left with no one less than God himself. And that's when scripture, that's when the Bible becomes very exciting. And that's when the Psalms become very exciting is when we look through them to see Jesus. How able he is to save you, how willing he is to save you, and how much we need saving. Okay? Here's one last problem before we push on. We've been looking at like seven or eight psalms already by this semester. There are some psalms that are a lot harder to look through and see Jesus than others, right? Like maybe uh, the one we're going to look at tonight, it's called a messianic psalm, which is a fancy word for say It's a psalm that more obviously points to Jesus. In particular, Psalm 69 is a song that Jesus himself is thinking It's on his mind, it's on his lips while he's dying on the cross. He says some of these words during the crucifixion. 
Um, Psalm 22, why, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Same thing, Messianic Psalm, because it points directly, clearly, overtly uh, to Jesus. And so that's what Psalm 69 is. David wrote it. It was true about King David and the situations in his life. But you see history progress over time and you see it was more true. It was fully realized in the life of Jesus. So some of this might sound like academic talk to you, but we got to get that out of the way so you can hear the rest of what we're going to talk about. Why don't you stand up? We'll read the passage. And we'll move on. I would say this is the insider account, the first-hand account of the crucifixion. Because we know from Scripture this is what Jesus was thinking. This is what was on his mind, on his lips when that was happening. Here's some of what, or what it sounded like when he was praying in that moment. Save me, O God, for the floodwaters are up to my neck. Deeper and deeper I sink into the mire. I can't find a foothold. I'm in deep water. The floods overwhelm me. I am exhausted from crying for help. My throat is parched. My eyes are swollen with weeping, waiting for my God to help me. Those who hate me without cause outnumber the hairs on my head. My enemies try to destroy me with lies, demanding that I give back what I didn't steal. I endure insults for your sake. Humiliation is written all over my face. Even my own brothers pretend they don't know me. Treat me like a stranger. Passion or zeal for your house, O God, has consumed me. And the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. When I weep and fast, they mock me. When I dress in burlap to show sorrow, they make fun of me. I'm the favorite topic of the town gossip. All the drunks sing about me. But I keep praying to you, Lord, hoping this time you will show me favor. In your unfailing love of God, answer my prayer with your sure salvation. Rescue me from the mud. Don't let me sink any deeper. Save me from those who hate me and pull me from these deep waters. Don't let the floods overwhelm me or the deep waters swallow me or the pit of death devour me. Answer my prayers, O Lord, for your unfailing love is wonderful. Take care of me, for your mercy is so plentiful. He goes on, he says, don't hide from your servant. Answer me quickly, for I'm in deep trouble. Come and redeem me from my enemies. You know of my shame, my scorn, my disgrace. You see all that my enemies are doing. Their insults have broken my heart. I'm in despair. If only one person would show me pity. If only one would turn and comfort me. But I instead, but instead they give me poison for food. They offer me sour wine for my thirst. Let the bountiful table set before them become a snare and their prosperity become a trap. Here we see, I'll I'll explain this in a minute. We see Jesus deviating a little bit from this in his own words. David says, let their eyes go blind so they cannot see. Make their bodies shake continually. Pour out your fury on them. Consume them with your burning anger. Let their homes become desolate and their tents be deserted. To the one you've punished, they add insult to injury. They add to the pain of those who you have hurt. Pile up their sins on high and don't let them go free. Erase their names from the book of life. Don't let them be counted among the righteous. I am suffering and in pain. 
Rescue me, O God, by your saving power. It's a long psalm. Let's pray God would help us to understand this. Lord, our prayer is what I said earlier, that we would see Jesus clearly, that each of us, our own distractions, our own doubts, our own obstacles to seeing him, to knowing him more, but all of those obstacles are easily surmountable to you. And we pray for your help tonight that we'd understand these things. We thank you that Jesus ended that prayer very differently than David did. Pray that you'd help us to see that tonight. We ask this in his name. Amen. Why don't you take a seat? Thanks. So about 200 years ago, there were these people who lived in England. And they were called the Puritans. And this is a group of Christians who lived in England. And the way they're... Their ministers, people like me, the way they interacted with the people who went to church was very different than it is today. Um, we might see each other once every other week or maybe once every Tuesday night or something like that. But back in the day, these pastors lived life with these people. Tiny little towns. They would go by every day and visit houses. So they would like, let's say they had 100 people in their church. They would break it down into like this many families a week and they would spend their days going house to house. And what they would do in there there is... They'd pray for them. They'd see how they're doing. They'd encourage them. Um, They'd celebrate with them. They would weep with them. And when the time came where one of the people in those houses was dying, these pastors died with their people too. And what I mean by that is they, they they lived life so intimately together that when mom or grandma or grandpa or your brother, when he died, you called the pastor. And he would come and he would hold your hand. He would pray for you. He would be there with the family. There was one pastor in particular who was so unsettled by this. He was so bothered by this experience. And the reason he was so bothered wasn't even because he had to look at death right in the face so frequently. That's not the reason he was bothered. The reason he was so bothered is uh, because he saw how poorly His people died. This is not something that we think about very much. We're the invulnerable age, right? We don't think about our deaths very much. But in that time, without medicine, without medical technology, people tended to know when they were going to die a little bit earlier on. It was a drawn-out process. And he, he was with these people for hours or days as they were dying, and he saw in their faces panic, like just depression, despair, these really sad goodbyes that weren't just like sad because I'm about to die. That's, that's totally normal, but a hopeless despair. And he saw, he saw fear. And he saw people who kind of were angry that God was taking their life before they were ready to give it up. It, it kept him up at night. And he, he, he decided in that moment, if my people are going to die well, I have to start teaching them how to die every day. That way, when the hour of death does come, they've already died a thousand times. They've practiced, they've rehearsed what it's like to lay your life down. What it's like to acknowledge that my life is not my own, it belongs to God. They already knew, because they'd practiced, they'd rehearsed it, where their hopes lie. That Jesus is bigger than death. That's what it takes to die well. That's what it took for this pastor and his people, for them to start dying well. 
Here's why this is relevant right now. We just spent a week, a lot of you in the room, you just spent a week going through Holy Week. Some of you went to Good Friday services. A lot of you went to Easter morning services. And even if you didn't, you probably grew up doing that a little bit. And we've been talking all week about Jesus' death and his resurrection. And I don't think we appreciate or I appreciate how well Jesus died. And I don't think we know how hard it is to die well. Hollywood makes it sound easy, right? Like it's the quintessential Hollywood moment. Like William Wallace is dying and he's courageous and full of energy. He doesn't even look like death, even though he's been tortured for a few days. And he's like, he's making these heroic speeches. And there's the close-up. And he's ready for it. And he's courageous in the face of it. Or the cowboy movies or whatever it is. Even the funny movies, death's diminished. People die well in Hollywood. But I don't think they do in real life. And the reason people don't die well in real life is because how unexpected it is, because of how much it interrupts everything we love and hold dear. And the biggest reason why I think we don't die well and people don't die well is because we can't see through death to what's beyond it. If you can't see beyond your circumstances, beyond that moment of death and how awful it is, you'll die one of three ways, angry, panicked, or hopeless. Angry because you feel like you've been cut short and you're just pissed. Like, why me? Why now? This is not the way my life is supposed to go. Or you'll die hopeless um, because you're like, this is the end. I'm never going to see my family again. I'm never, all of this stuff that I love is gone. Uh, Or you'll die panicked Because for the first time, you're realizing a lot of questions I should have been asking earlier, I have no idea how to answer them. Like, what was I made for? What was the point of my life? What's next? What is God going to think when I stand before him? Angry, hopeless, or panicked. That's how people die when they can't see through the darkness. Here's the difference. If you're familiar with the story of Jesus' death, most of us are. He died on the cross, right? In the tomb for three days, was raised up. You don't see in that, those accounts, any hints of panic or hopelessness or anger. You see a lot of grief. You see a lot of pain, a lot of excruciating pain, emotional pain, physical pain. But you don't see hopelessness, you don't see panic, and you don't see anger. And I think the reason why is Jesus saw through that moment. He was able to fly in the dark. Where other people can't fly in the dark, he was able to fly through the uncertainty, fly through those dark circumstances. Let me make this a little bit more clear to you. There are two pilot's licenses that you have to have to be like a commercial airline pilot. There's two levels of pilot's licenses. The first is called VFR. It's very important to remember this. This is kind of the amateur beginner pilot. You can spend a few hundred hours flying in a little plane or whatever, learning some book knowledge, and they'll give you what's called a VFR license, visual flight rating. VFR licenses are for pilots who can, they're only allowed to fly when it's blue skies, sunny, they can't fly at night, they can't fly when it's cloudy, not when it's rainy, not when it's windy, only when you can use your eyes and your senses to navigate. That's, it's, it's easier there because you're like, I can see other planes to avoid them. I can see the runways right there, so I'm going to go land over there. VFR, visual flight rating. 
But if you want to be like a big-time airline pilot, the kind who flies us all around, you have to get the second tier of pilot's license. It's called IFR. And it means instrument flight rating. IFR pilots can fly in any conditions. Fog that you can't see your hand in front of your face. Blinding rain. Huge winds. Dust storms. Snowstorms. Darkness. Whatever. They're cleared to fly anywhere because the pilots who fly with that instrument flight rating, they're not using their eyes or their senses to navigate. They're using their instruments. And their life is on the line with those instruments, and so is everybody else in the back, that these instruments are telling me the truth about what's in front of me and what's around me, about the way the world really is, because they can't see. It's foggy. It's dark. Whatever. Like, you can look. You can't see. And many, many pilots have crashed, kind of this visual flight rating pilots, many of them have crashed when conditions changed in the air. They thought they knew how to fly, but when they couldn't navigate anymore, when they couldn't see through the darkness... They couldn't see through the fog. They couldn't navigate anymore. And the plane goes down. Or they confuse up and down. Jesus couldn't see out of the cockpit in the last few days of his life. And what I mean by that is that all of the landmarks, all of the evidence that God was with him and for him, that God would protect him, all of those landmarks, all of that data was behind the fog. It was gone. He couldn't see it. This psalm that I just read, this really long psalm that we just read, it's Jesus saying, I can't see with my eyes and my senses. All of that evidence is gone. He says in the very first part of this, David says at first, Jesus takes this prayer as his own later on. He says, the waters are up to my neck. I'm sinking in the mud and I can't find a foothold, which means I'm sinking down, 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 down. There's nothing to catch me. I'm in free fall. And he says after that, I'm exhausted crying for help. What he actually says on the cross, it's recorded in the gospels, my throat is parched. He says, I thirst. Then they give him the sour wine. He says, my eyes are swollen with weeping. Another version says, my eyes fail looking for my God. My eyes fail looking for my God, trying to find him. So Jesus in this moment is like the pilot in the plane flying. Everything's on the line. He's in the air. And he can't see with his eyes. So the question is, how is he going to make it through these moments? Even his friends have turned their back on him, his disciples, his family, everybody. He can't live by sight because everything around him is telling him he's abandoned. And so in this moment, what he does instead is he starts flying by his instruments. And in this scenario, instruments, and for your life as well, instruments, what it means to fly by instruments is flying, living by the word of God. By the promises of God, the character of God. And you might not be able to see anything else in your life. Jesus wasn't able to see anything else except what he knew to be true from the scriptures and from his father about what his God is like. And so he is literally, hell is coming at him. And his eyes are on the cockboard dashboard watching the instruments, watching what he knows to be true about his father. He's living 
off the instruments. That's how he's getting through the darkness. That's how he's flying into it, into the fog, into the darkness. And this is how he dies well. Remember, the way you die poorly is you can't see through it and you crash. Jesus sees through it. Here's how I know that. David prayed it first. Jesus prayed it later when he took this prayer at his own. Verse 9, zeal for your house, O God, consumes me. This is the stuff that was on his mind in these moments. Passion for my father's house consumes me. He says, I pray to you, Lord, in your unfailing love, answer my prayer with your sure salvation. Salvation. Praying to God even in the midst of that. Answer my prayers for your unfailing love is wonderful. Don't hide from your servant. I'm in deep trouble. He's talking. He's remembering this is the God who saves. This is my father. I love him. Even though he can't see, he sees. Just like those pilots going off their instruments, even though they can't see, they can still navigate. They can still know what's ahead of them. And so Jesus lives by faith in these moments. And that's how he dies so well and so marvelously. Is that's what he was looking at. And as he dies, this is the psalm that's on his heart and on his mind. Now, when I finished reading this psalm, you might have gotten a little antsy because you're like, this psalm was on his mind when he was dying on the cross because didn't you end Psalm 69 with a curse? And this is, this is the funny part. Jesus deviates. He cuts this psalm off and he stops reading and he says something that's, that's its opposite instead. If you're familiar with the gospel accounts, what Jesus does say on the cross isn't God pour out your fury on these people who have crucified me, who have rejected me and rejected you. He didn't say that. He didn't say pile up their sins on high and don't let them go free. He didn't say, Father, erase their names from the book of life and don't let them be counted among the righteous. What he did say on the cross is, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing or who they're doing it to. And he said, into your hands I commit my spirit. My question to you is this. This isn't so shocking for us because we know how the story ended. But imagine this. Imagine that you're a Jew on the day Jesus, the Son of God, was crucified, was murdered. And let's say you're like the, that soldier, that Roman soldier who was there. You know the guy who said, truly this was the Son of God. Let's say as you're watching that hours-long crucifixion take place, you over time become convinced this really was the Messiah. This really is God come to rescue me. And then you hear this guy up on that cross as he dies praying this prayer. And you hear him get up to around verse 22 What are you thinking he's going to say next? You hear the crowd hurling insults at him. You see these people dismiss him because they're like us. We play games with God. We pretend we live our lives. We're God, whatever. They're hurling insults. This is just another guy thrown out to the trash pile. You hear all of that. You know in your own heart the rebellion that's there, the the resistance to God that's there. And you ask yourself, what's he going to say next? What's he going to say next? 
Do you know that he would have been fully within his rights to pray the curse upon those people and us? Do you know that that would have been fair for him to do? He himself said, don't you know I could call upon a legion of angels and they would come deliver me? This is God. He is not a captive to anybody. He is there voluntarily. Do you know that it would have been fair? It would have been righteous. It would have been just. It would have been pure. In that moment, if he had started saying what David prayed hundreds of years before in David's predicament and his situation. David was right to call that curses. David was the Lord's anointed, and you don't mess with God's man. And David saw all of these godless nations attacking the people of God, so David called a curse down upon them. Would Jesus do it too? I don't know if you've ever thought about this. We take it for granted. We're like the director watching the movie. It's his movie. We know what all the lines are going to be. We're just waiting for the actor to say them. But they didn't know what was coming next in this situation. This was all new to them. What's going to come next? The Gospels, as I said, record a very different story. He stops praying this prayer. And he prays this instead. Father, pour out your fury on me. That they may not be consumed by your anger. Pile their sins on me and declare them innocent. By my sacrifice, write their names in the book of life. Let me be counted among the sinners so that they could be counted among the righteous. He completely, completely reverses the way David prayed this prayer at that moment. He didn't continue with that. We end with a story. When I was maybe 10 years old, a tornado hit my house went right over our neighborhood. My parents woke up in the middle of the night to the sound of a tornado siren. And you know what it's like to be woken up by a noise. They're groggy. By the time they pieced together what that noise was and what it meant, they had about 20 or 30 seconds to do something uh, before this tornado passed right over our house. So the question is, in that moment when they don't have time to think or plan, what do they do? What are their truest instincts? What are their truest loves? Because that moment would reveal them. Because they didn't have time to do anything except for act. And so, my dad's car was parked out in the driveway. Would he go to get his car and pull it into the garage? My dog, our cocker spaniel, was running around the backyard, barking, running in circles, just frantically panicked barking. Would my mom run out to the backyard and get my dog and bring her in? That night... My dad's car was destroyed because he left it in the driveway. And my dog was left by herself. Eventually, she smarted up and came in the house. And the reason why is because my mom and my dad came for the kids. And in that moment, their truest instincts were revealed. Their truest love was revealed. They came for me. I woke up that night to my dad's arm scooping me off the top bunk of my bunk beds and his other arm scooping my my older brother off his bottom bunk and firemen carrying us both in each arm downstairs, my mom carrying my sister running to the basement where there's shelter. That was the first I knew about any of this. And in that moment, I know looking back, My mom and my dad didn't have a plan. They didn't have time to think or a manual to go read. It was pure 
character. I saw their insides that night. It was how they flinched when they got kicked. Psalm 69 gives us, in a sense, a firsthand account of what the Son of God was experiencing and thinking and feeling in this moment that this tornado of unimaginable wrath, of God's intolerance for sin, of his perfect righteousness, all of this stuff, this whirlwind, this tornado coming down upon him, his truest instincts, his truest loves are revealed because he didn't have the luxury or the time to go read a manual. He was flying blind only with the instruments, only what he knew most true, most true, only how he had practiced this moment a thousand times before, laying down his life for his people, for his father's glory. In that moment, what do you see him do? Does he go get the car? Does he go get the dog? Does he go salvage his reputation because it's being mocked? Does he set those people right for the record and smash them? Does he prove his power in that moment and call the angels to deliver him? No. He looks to his father and he looks to his people and he sees them through the darkness. That's where he flinches. For you and his father. And that is the truest moment you will see in Jesus' life. What kind of person is this we're dealing with? Friends, I got to tell you, some of you know this to be true. Some of you need to know, this is a historical account. Paul says, if you don't believe this, go ask the 500 people who saw the resurrected Jesus. He's not talking about inspirational stories to boost your emotions. This is not a God to be toyed around with because he takes your predicament, your stuckness, your sin seriously. And so to play games with him throws his grace right back in his face. He is dealing seriously with the places you're most scared about, you're most broken about, you're most shamed about. He has come for you. He has come for you in your hardest places. And he has come to bring you back to life. Look at Jesus and your faith grows. Look at the instruments. Look at the word of God, the gospel it proclaims. And you also will be able to fly through the darkness, through the storms. Let's pray that Jesus would help us to do that. Lord, we thank you in this moment. This and also the gospel accounts we we talked about last week. We heard him preach. We sung about him. You were beautiful, you were perfect, you were excellent, you were marvelous in that moment. And best of all, you rose up in your own power because you were bigger than death and you have defeated it. You have defeated our sins. Our names are written in the book of life. We are counted among the righteous now. Our sins were piled on you, not on us, that we might walk free, that we might be made new. My words can't do anything to anybody tonight but your words can. So speak the word, rise up, live to my brothers and sisters tonight. Speak those words, Jesus, that dead souls would live again, that blind eyes would see, that deaf ears would hear, that stagnant, cold hearts would be warmed. We ask this in your name with great thanksgiving. Amen.